0: a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca.
1: What if you took the time
2: to really soak Hello everyone and welcome to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca, your host, and just want you to know that I appreciate you listening to my show. So speak to me because my team and I spend lots of time and lots of energy thinking and preparing for our show about things that we care about and that I think that you will too. So if you let me know what you're thinking, whether you find the show riveting, valuable, horrific, offensive, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, Jet me an email at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. You can also go right to my website, talkwithfrancesca.com, and fill out the contact form. It'll get right to me. You can visit me on Facebook. I promise I'll get right back to you. And if you missed part of the show, you can go to recent shows on my website. Again, the address is talkwithfrancesca.com, and you can listen there. And I'm also on iTunes, so plenty of places to listen to Talk with Francesca. All right, then. Let's see. Let's get going. The American justice system is complicated. Justice isn't always just, and the law isn't always as black and white as some people would like to believe. We're overflowing in prisons, and we're constantly bombarded with stories of crime from our local news to TV shows. These stories often skew the way we look at people who have been to jail to the point where there is just one bad perception that lumps all prisoners together. Well, director Signe Taylor has given us another way to look at some of them with the documentary It's Criminal. The documentary is about Dartmouth students and incarcerated women coming together to write and perform a play about the lives of the incarcerated women. Signe is an award filmmaker with many accolades for documentaries such as Circus Dreams and Greetings from Iraq. So I'm really thrilled to have her here with us today. So welcome, Signe. And I, by the way, am I pronouncing your name properly?
3: Yes, yes, you are, and <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me.
2: <laughs> well, it's funny because I think that when we were emailing back and forth a couple of times. I think I was calling you Taylor, and I have a niece named Taylor, and so for whatever <gasps> reason, I kept thinking that was your first name. So my apologies for the my apologies for that. No Any, worries. Okay, but anyway, so let let's get right to it. That your documentary was. Um, Phenomenal, it really, it was amazing. So, um, you know, actually, I used to, um, I think I may have told you this in one of the emails, that I used to teach yoga um, at Women in Transition in um, Salisbury many moons ago
3: that's wonderful yeah
2: that was it was really quite an experience um learned so much you know it was just it learned so so much about life and people and myself too so but anyway mm-hmm. I want to talk mm-hmm. about your documentary so what was the inspiration behind this documentary and, and how did it all come together I guess would be part B of that question
3: sure well I first heard about, so the documentary follows a Dartmouth College class that brings together incarcerated women and students to write and perform a play that is grounded in the lives of the imprisoned women. So the women, um, so they create skits, and the skits help share some of what landed the women behind bars, and um, and also sort of share dreams they have of the future, mm-hmm. and So I was actually recruited many years ago um, to film the final performance of not the class that I documented for the film, but a much earlier class, one that took place in 2006, and I was hired as just a freelance videographer, and... I went to the prison, as Windsor Prison in Vermont, which was where the class was taking place then, and I was pretty blown away by the performance and by the experience of going inside a correctional facility, which I'd never done before. And during the performance, I thought it was, it's very raw, it's very potent, and at the end, the women and the students were all talking about what an amazing experience it was to take part in this class, and I continued to film the final performances of the class for several years after that, and then I was like, you know, I really want to know what brought these women and these students to this place where they're talking about how profound it was, how meaningful it was, they're crying, and I thought like, okay, like, let's do a film that sort of shows the process of getting to that end point. Mm -hmm.
2: So how was the decision made for what inmates you used for the documentary?
3: Sure. Great question. Um, As a documentary filmmaker, I love observational documentaries, so I love filming something that's happening. So I knew the class was ten weeks, I knew that something was gonna happen over the course of the ten weeks, but when I start, I don't know what's gonna happen. I just show up and I worked with a wonderful camera woman, Charlene Music, she was doing camera, I was doing sound, and we just showed up every day to film with the students and film with the women when they were in class, when they were in the, the jail by the when the women were in the jail by themselves, when the students were on campus. And As the class, about two weeks into the class, you start to see who's being really impacted by this experience. You see who's changing. And so then you start to focus on those people a little bit, although we did in-depth interviews with every participant in the program a couple of times. Um, But I could start to see that this class was making a big difference in the lives of the um, incarcerated women that we focused on malika and charlotte i could see it was making a huge difference difference to um georgia Mm -hmm. and Thander, who were the two students that we focused on and then another uh prisoner amy joined the project a little bit later than the others her sentence you know she just happened to be sentenced a little bit later and she was also profoundly impacted and started talking about um that she had experienced abuse, and she had never actually spoken those words out loud mm-hmm. before. She started working on these skits, and so she also became one of the main characters in the film. So basically, I, I like to document people who change. Mm-hmm.
2: I actually uh, went to school for expressive arts therapy, so um, at Leslie, and so yeah, I, I think that it it just something about being able to express. Yeah, right. Rather than talk it through it has, you know, I mean, I remember I, this was a zillion years ago, but I remember it, it really impacting me. And like, wow, stuff that, you know, I talked about forever, you know, when I acted it out, it yep. was a, it was a different world. But but tell us more about the 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 uh, students who were impacted first and then the incarcerated women that were impacted. What did you see in terms of um, how they
3: were impacted? Sure. One of the Georgia um I could, Georgia, um, she was a student, right? She was a student at Dartmouth and a sort of varsity lacrosse player, um, very smart, but not necessarily the typical student that you think you would find in this women and gender studies class. She was from a conservative background. She most of the other students in the class were more liberal in their political orientation and Georgia was not but she was very she, but she showed up to the class with an open mind and she was really taking it in. And I could just look at her face and I could see like she is processing a lot of information right now. Mm -hmm. And she was also very open about how that was impacting her. And she was saying like nobody had ever asked her to think about inequality before. Nobody had ever asked her to think about, you know, privilege and lack of privilege, oppression and oppressors. And so she was very open to the experience And really changed over the course of the ten weeks and actually I think continued on her journey after the class was over Um, she and Malika one of the prisoners got off to a bit of a rocky start but then by the end of the class they were allies and when Malika got out of jail in November the class ended in August because it took place in the summer And because Dartmouth has this summer term for sophomores. And when Malika got out in November, Georgia was at Dartmouth and they partnered together to do a toy drive for the children of parents who were still incarcerated at Sullivan County. So Malika found out all the parents who were incarcerated. She got them to list the the names of their children, the age of their children, their likes, their desires. And then she worked with Georgia and Georgia's sorority to buy gifts for all the kids. And then they all got together, the sorority sisters and the prisoners, to wrap the gifts together so that the prisoners knew what their kids were getting and this is male and female prisoners. And so they knew what their kids were getting. And I just think it was a really beautiful thing to see. It's really beautiful that Malika and Georgia were able to come from very different places, able to overcome their differences and become real allies. It was a it was a hmm. cool process.
2: Why do you think that was I mean I, I, I understand where you're coming yeah. from with Georgia, but, but what about the For Malika. Malika, yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, so Malika at first, she looked at Georgia, and Georgia is tall and blonde and beautiful. And Malika was like, she is tall and blonde and beautiful and exactly what you think of when you think of a Dartmouth student. And Malika was um, distrustful of her, let's say. But Georgia is open, and Georgia is kind, and Malika is open, and Malika is kind. And they got over that initial distrust of each other and they were also in a class that was really encouraging cooperation empathetic listening and they practiced that together not in like a kind of hokey way but in just a really real way and they got to the end and they were friends that's amazing they just became friends yeah
2: so what are some misconceptions about incarcerated women do you think
3: Yeah, well, I think the first misconception is that we don't have women inside correctional facilities. I think Orange is the New Black has changed that. But Mm. before Orange is the New Black, I don't think many people knew that we were incarcerating women in the United States. And in fact, we incarcerate more women than any other country in the world. So why so? Ah uh, why? I don't know. It's we incarcerate more women and we incarcerate more men and I, I don't I I don't know why. I think it can be a hard on, you know, the three strikes you're out. I think that, you know, it's just how we choose to deal with crime in our country. And I think other countries either don't have the resources to incarcerate at the rates we do or they have a different view of how to deal with with people who are experiencing addiction and consequently committing crimes. So European countries tend to have a very different approach, but I don't know why we have such high rates of incarceration. I think it's um for me personally, I don't think it's something us. I think it's it's um it it disturbs me. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um so what are some st- statistics about incarcerated women?
3: sure so incarcerated women um approximately 90 percent and and also when you talk about incarceration statistics are um, tend to vary a little bit because incarceration means you can both be sentenced to jail where your sentence is a year or less or to prison where your sentence is a year or more so when you talk about incarceration statistics and you can be as sentenced to state facilities or to federal facilities and so when you talk about incarceration statistics there's a lot of big um, change a little bit depending on what population you're referring to but having said that incarcerated women approximately all incarcerated women approximately 85 to 90 percent have experienced severe physical or sexual abuse in their lives so that's 85 to 90 percent of the women
2: doesn't su- that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, because that's, you
3: know, and then that, that
2: which we lead. That which we resist persists, sort of speak, right? That whole, right? I mean, yeah. It, you know, when you're abused, especially when you're younger, you know, it's like you mm-hmm. can't even process it. So it's just sort of it, it continues on and acting out.
3: Yeah, and in pain. And then also, you know, a lot of women, approximately 85 to 90% of women who are incarcerated have addiction issues. And so I think that those are very much linked, the trauma and the addiction. And I think another statistic that people should really, really hear is that 70% of incarcerated women have children under the age of 18. So when you incarcerate a woman, a lot of the times you're incarcerating the primary caregiver of a child is under 18 and those children then need to find someone to take care of them and they can go into the foster care system which isn't necessarily the best outcome for a lot of kids they can bounce from family member to family member whatever the outcome of incarcerating a mother their kid is going to suffer and um
2: no doubt no doubt do you yeah. do you have any statistics on racial and ethnic disparity that goes on in the prison and the judicial judi- judicial system? <laughs> I can't
3: talk you know what, morning. that is such a fantastic question, and there is a lot of racial disparity. But because I was working in New Hampshire, and I live in Vermont, so I, I'm familiar with New Hampshire and Vermont. The populations of New Hampshire and Vermont are very white, and the incarcerated population is also very white. So that is another thing that even though there is a great disparity mm. among both women and men, that more people of color are incarcerated than people who are not of color, that's that's very true. And it's appalling. But in Vermont, New Hampshire, because the population is so white, you know, you're not going to see that as much. But the fastest growing, and one thing that people might find interesting is that the fastest growing group of incarcerated people is rural women who tend to be white. And they're going to jails. So the, large- so the group that's growing faster than any other group is rural women being incarcerated in jails. Why do
2: you think that is?
3: Um, I think it's the opiate crisis. Yeah. I think that, um- and I also think that it's also the growing economic divide and that's been, it's really impacting, um, I know from living, you know, I live in Vermont, and so around here, that divide really impacts families who used to do okay, they're not doing okay anymore.
2: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, I'm speaking with director Signe Taylor about her documentary, It's Criminal. Um, We do need to take a short break, Signy. But when we come back, we I I would love to talk about uh, a little bit more about this uh, the statistics on the number of incarcerated women with children. I think that's really I want to get back to that. So listeners, stay with us here. We will be right back. Don't go anywhere. Coffee no longer has to be a guilty pleasure. You've heard that red wine is good for you because of nature's most potent antioxidant, resveratrol. Vera Roasting Company makes the only coffee infused with it. Each cup of Vera's coffee delivers the same amount of resveratrol as found in a glass of red wine without the alcohol, sulfates, or tannins. Years of medical studies indicate that regular resveratrol in our diets promote cardiovascular health, slows the progression of certain cancers, Alzheimer's disease, and type 2 diabetes. Vera Roasting Coffee won double-blind taste tests against the leading coffees. Vera Roasting also offers its delicious, heart-healthy coffees with added vitamin D to help Ward off the winter blues. You can't get Vera Roasting coffee in stores. You need to go to veraroasting.com. Free and fast shipping is always available. Veraroasting.com. Vera like Vera Bradley. Go to veraroasting.com. That's veraroasting.com.
1: Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terra Mia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy tutorial with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisines here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Restaurante Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing, and best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit TerramiaRestaurante.com. It can be easy to lose sight of your dreams and aspirations, especially when they seem so out of reach. Between school, kids, and work, your true desires can get left on the back burner. But you should never settle for less than what you deserve and what you know in your heart of hearts you want to do. Carrie Hummingbird has developed a program that will cast away your fear and self-doubt and inspire you to take charge of your life. But don't take my word for it. Christina Wolfe took the program and described it as a trustworthy guide to show you how to transform yourself at the soul level. You will have to dig deep, and it won't be easy, but then again, nothing worth having is. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone, and your comfort zone ends at the Reinvent Yourself program. So what are you waiting for? visit www.carryhummingbird.com. You'll be glad you did.
4: The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle Iced Coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at CobblestoneCafeNE.com. I need the sign to break. You've woken up my heart. I'm shaking all right,
2: we are back, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with director Signe Taylor about her documentary, It's Criminal. Welcome back, Signe. Thanks for being with us today on Talk with Francesca. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I want to talk a little bit more about the statistics of the number of incarcerated women with children and, and you know, what that really does to the kids. I mean, do then do the kids yep. end up turning around and becoming incarcerated? I mean, do you, do you have any statistically
3: children who have a parent who's incarcerated statistically they are more likely to become incarcerated themselves which makes sense and we and we actually address that in the film which isn't surprising because most of the women that i was documenting inside sullivan county were mothers and one of them in particular was dealing with custody issues around her son where um she was having she didn't have she he had some special needs and she was his primary caregiver his whole life. And he was 10 years old and he was acting out and she couldn't figure out a way to keep him safe. And so just watching her go through that process was heartbreaking because obviously she loves her son and obviously she wants the world for her son, but her son, meanwhile, has lost you know the pr- his primary caregiver and the person who's able to make his life function, and it was um, it was very very hard to watch. So uh, but I know. think I lost the question. <laughs> That's
2: okay. That's okay. Uh, you know, I, I I'm curious about something. Just veering off a little bit. How did you get so interested in this? Was there something personal yeah. or just?
3: Um, I think. The, you know, the process of the class where you bring together Dartmouth students and incarcerated women, I think that speaks to me um, because I think it's really important that uh, we bring together people who are different. I think we live in a Mm. society that's increasingly separated into silos and that, I just find that really distressing. And so I loved that this class was breaking down those barriers and breaking down those walls because I think that. You know, I come from the position that everybody's good and everybody's trying to do the right thing. And, you know, we mess up and we might have different understandings of, you know, the best way to get to the right place. But I think that we're basically all good. But when we're divided, that's when people can live in fear and in ignorance. And, that's, and I'm not accusing anybody on the left of doing that or anybody on the right of doing that. I'm saying that we all do that.
4: Uh-huh.
3: And that I love that the class brought together people who are different. And I also think it's really important To look at the full equation around the justice system in our country, you can see a lot of films that talk about how people have had a hard life and how that might have helped land them behind bars. But it's not so frequent that you couple that discussion about how um, difficulties growing up can, can, can take you on a path towards incarceration. I don't think you often see that next to also showing how privilege in life can lead you to success and so to I think that the accidents of birth are something that we don't really acknowledge in this country and you know maybe a lot of people think they get to call it to a college like Dartmouth because the kids work hard and they deserve it and they do work hard and they do deserve it and many many times they've also had privilege that helped get them there and so I think no that doubt. we really no do yeah yeah, we need to look at both sides. And I would love that the class was kind of looking at both sides. That really spoke to me.
2: Yeah. You know, um, actually, there was a while ago I had an ad for an intern, and, and this woman responded. And as it turned out, she it was very, very interesting. She was a very, very bright girl, and, and I wanted to hire her. Um, and, and then she read in my biography on my website that I had taught yoga to women in transition. And so she called me, and she told me that she was there, and yeah, yeah it was pretty amazing. It was it really it was amazing, amazing story. Anyway, you know, and she reiterated a number of times that she didn't come from that side of the tracks, but that she got caught up in alcohol and, you know, and, and drinking, and then you know, OUIs, yep. and then da, 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 you know the whole story. And anyway, but you know, um, she definitely wasn't in a place where she was very wanted me to know that she did not come from that side, right? Um and so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um but you know, I was just, you know, open to it all. It's like, yeah, hey, she got on with her life and that was fine." Um but then she just kind of disappeared and she didn't, you know, it, it was for mm-hmm. whatever reason and I don't know I don't know if it was I'm not sure what the reason is. I'm I'm really not sure, but you know, I mean, it was I was more than open to working with her but it didn't work out. So I thought that was kind of interesting and it made me think about the addictions and you know with the yep. opioid crisis and um you know that you know someone's in pain and the next thing you know, you know they've had surgery and they start to take these um opiates and then the next thing you know they're addicted and yeah it's a, just a crazy cycle as we know. Um I don't know where I'm even going with this but
3: <laughs> yeah well it's true I mean I would actually there was Several women who, and we shot in 2010, and it took me a long time to edit, but so this was sort of before the opiate crisis was being acknowledged, but several of the women told me that they became addicted to opiates because they, one, had had a snowboarding accident, and then she was prescribed opiates for two years, and then was cut off abruptly, and another had hurt her back at a cleaning job and was also prescribed opiates for two years and then was cut off abruptly like both of them started with legal prescriptions oh gosh
2: crazy crazy yeah um, anyway so so what kinds of programs are there for incarcerated women to reintegrate into society
3: that is a great question and we are on a mission that it's criminal team and I were on a mission to get more programming for women who are in jail there are programs for women in prison and prison is where you go if your sentence is a year or more jail is where you go if your sentence is a year or less and in most jails county jails there is no programming whatsoever like literally nothing and so why we think that you take somebody, send them to jail where they do nothing or they do free County labor and then they get out. Why we think anything's going to change. It's just mind boggling. right? Right. And so in jails, we were uh, the when we were filming the jail Sullivan County actually opened a rehabilitation program called trails so we were both I was documenting a program called telling my story so that gave the women programming and then they were and then as and then in addition to telling my story they became part of this new correctional facility that was offering a program called trails that offered programming from 8 in the morning until 6 o'clock at night thinking for a change parenting skills job seeking skills and when the women got out they were given a year of aftercare and the aftercare was ua analysis so urine analysis for for drugs uh, for substance use Um, but they were also given counseling and they met first every week and then every month and the counselor who they were meeting with was always very open to talking with them and helping them if issues came up and the women in my film say that the combination of telling my story which helps them start addressing some of the stuff that set them on the road to incarceration, in combination with the TRAILS program, which gave them concrete skills for how to deal with the outside world, those two things turn their life around. And if you look at the incarceration rates for women who have gone through the TRAILS program and women at Sullivan County who haven't, the recidivism rate is half for women who have gone through the TRAILS program. So when you do programming, in correctional facilities, it leads to lower recidivism, and it costs $35,000 a year to incarcerate people. So it's such a no-brainer on so many fronts that we need to be offering programming because none of these women wanted to be in jail. All of these women wanted to be home with their kids, working, none of them wanted to be addicted. It's really, you know, we've, but we've gotta give people tools so they can succeed.
2: Oh, of course, absolutely.
3: Yeah.
2: I've got an intern who's throwing up questions for me like crazy over here. Um, she wants to know how does bail impact equal justice?
4: <gasps>
3: bail. Now, that's another huge issue. I think Massachusetts has a bail fund, which is wonderful because New Hampshire and Vermont do not. And one of the ways, there was one young woman in the film, Nikki. And she was inside the correctional center because her family could not make bail. So she wasn't sentenced, but because her family couldn't make bail, she was, she couldn't make bail herself. She was 19 years old because of that. She was inside the facility until her case could go to trial. So bail is a primary place where the justice system starts to become unjust because if, Some people are able to be out on bail for two years as, you know, while you wait for the trial. Because if you have a trial, it doesn't happen within a couple of months. It takes a long, long time. So some people can continue to go to college. Let's say someone, so if Nikki had come from a different family, she could have been pursuing a college education. But instead, she spent two years inside the facility.
2: What a waste. Until
3: her what a waste. And inside a facility that did not have programming at 19 years old. It's crazy. And,
2: and you know, yeah, it's just like, it, what does that do for her mental state?
3: What does that prepare her for? Exactly. I, I just think, like, you know, right. we... And right. Smart young woman. She was on her way to college when she was arrested. For
2: what? What was she arrested for?
3: She was arrested in conjunction with, um, with a drug... Um, deal that had gone awry. Hmm.
2: Here's another one question from one of my interns. Why do the growing economic and social divides in the United States matter? These kids are brilliant, aren't they? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Why does it matter? Well, I think it Why matters. Why don't I just throw her on the air and have her ask
3: all the right. questions.
2: <laughs> She's like these questions? She's like throwing these questions up at the window. Like, ask her this question. Ask her that question. <sighs>
3: Well, I think, well, one, I think it matters because it's, you know, I think that the strongest economies come from countries that have the largest middle class. And what's happening now is half of our middle class is falling into poverty and the other half of the middle class is going into extreme wealth. And it's not leaving a whole lot of people in the middle. And I think that that makes for an unstable society, I think. And it's also just, it's just you know, I just have a very you know, basic reaction that it's unfair, that it's unfair that some children are raised in extraordinary privilege where it's very hard for them to fail, and it's unfair that other kids are raised in situations where it's very hard for them to succeed. And we don't have an equal playing field. And we live in a country that believes in equal opportunity and equal justice. Like that's you know, that's what the United States stands for. And as our economy divides, that's what we do not have. Right. We don't have equal opportunity. We don't have equal justice. How did you grow up? I grew up I my father is actually an economist, so that's why I sort of tend to break things down. Yeah. Probably by that, um, by that by that mm-hmm. divide. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a professor at MIT. So I grew up privileged and I was brought up to know my privilege and to, you know, actually be able to place it. exactly where I was on the economic spectrum. Yep. <laughs> yep. And to be grateful for it but, because well, I did nothing to get it. Yeah, Yeah, I'm very grateful for it.
2: That's great. You know, there are so many popular shows about prison from, you know, Orange, obviously, Orange is the New Black to Prison Break. Yep. What do you think of um, the, the fascination is?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. I, It's a big, big, big topic um, for for crime shows, for police shows, for law and order shows. Um maybe, I don't know why there's such a fascination with it. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe it's like yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, And you know, it's well, I don't know, it's funny, but you know, I got Netflix, this was way back when, you know, and that was the first series that I wanted to watch. And you know, I yep. did I watched it like every night for you know, I don't know, maybe like a couple weeks and then one day it's like, what? Why am I fascinated with this? This is like horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like garbage and just, you know, and so I'm just curious, you know, what is this fascination?
3: Well, I think Orange is the New Black is a really interesting show because I think that it really, it has an all-female cast, which is pretty unusual, right? Because women tend to be underrepresented in film and television. But I also think that it has also at times very empathetic portrayals of these women, right? It explains how they got there It's, mm-hmm. it's very humanizing mm-hmm. And so I think in some ways It's a fantastic show And then there's, you know It's also very sensationalistic Right <laughs> and, You know, you're just like Really? You had to do that? I know, <laughs> right,
2: right uh, yeah.
3: But there it's was, an interesting program Yeah,
2: there was one scene I can't even I, 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 I was just like Oh, this is gross I just can't do this This is just This is vile yeah. It was, you know The woman didn't like her food And um, the cook and uh, what she did was just, I can't even say it on the air. Uh, but anyway, so how, right. do we, how do we translate that fascination from on
3: screen to real life? Well, I think, you know, I think one of the important things we can do is break down the barriers between inside and outside. I think that correctional facilities tend to be placed where people don't see them. And so maybe we have this fascination with prisoners because it's very hard to interact with prisoners, right? So they're very unknown. They're out there. And, you know, it's this place where we send bad people. And, you know, there's a lot of um, stuff that goes on around correctional facilities. So I think one of the best things that we can do is just get inside a correctional facility. You know, you can volunteer to go in and, like you did, and that's just a life-transforming experience. And, I, you know, you can volunteer to teach knitting. You can volunteer to you know videotape prisoners recording uh bedtime stories that get sent to their children like there's a lot of ways that you can become involved and I think that that is a really good thing because then it's not like there's us and them there's just us right like there's no difference between people on the inside and the outside there's just us
2: so have you been following the Me Too movement and and if so which probably you have how has it impacted your life or has it at all
3: well i have been following the me too movement and it was really interesting when the weinstein allegations came out i was not wanting to look at them because i grew up i'm 53 now and so the weinstein brothers were really big influences on me as a filmmaker they made um they brought films to the united states that i wouldn't have been able to see otherwise and they sort of opened my eyes around film and so i really didn't want to have Uh, another hero taken down uh, but then when i started reading the allegations i was disgusted and i um i also began to remember my experiences in the 80s as a young woman on film sets where hands were very very free male hands you know from the producers and the directors they felt like they could touch me wherever they wanted to touch me and Oftentimes that was happening on a darkened movie set while the camera was rolling so I could do, on a crowded set, so I could do absolutely nothing. You're just trapped there. And I actually stopped working in the world of fiction film narrative film advertising because it was such a macho environment in the 80s and I was like I don't want this in the early 90s I just didn't you know it was not a world that I wanted to be part of and mm-hmm. so I went into documentary films which is very female friendly but mm-hmm. I do when I when the when those with the hashtag me too I was like wow so many women mm-hmm. I think right. when you know we were in our early 20s yep. mid 20s those women so many of them left the fiction filmmaking world because it was so unfriendly
2: yeah if you're just tuning in you're listening to talk with francesca we're talking to director Signe taylor about her documentary it's criminal we do need to take another short break listeners stay with us here don't go away we will be right back lots more to talk about Your body is not the only part of you that needs training. Your brain needs it, too. Decision-making and focus are one of the most important skills to accomplish your goals in life. Combat Brain Training is the first targeted neuroplasticity training that actually improves your cognitive ability to observe, decide, and act better and faster. Unlike digital-based programs that research shows create minimal or no real-world benefits, it incorporates portable handheld training tools that utilize all parts of the brain. 100% of the people who have followed the program report significant improvements in performance regardless of starting cognitive baseline. This program is perfect for anyone looking to accelerate their thinking process and really focus more effectively on any task at hand. Don't wait any longer. Go to CombatBrainTraining.com and find out more.
4: Captain Lord Mansion is the ultimate bed-and-breakfast experience. It's the only AAA four-diamond bed-and-breakfast in Kennebunkport. But it's so much more. It's the perfect, elegant, romantic getaway. Relax at their day spa. Be pampered in your room with heated floors, jetted showers and tubs, gas fireplaces, king and queen beds, flat-screen TVs, and all the quaintness with all the modern conveniences. Be surrounded by impeccable gardens, waterfalls, fountains, a putting green a charming gift shop, wine cellar, the list goes on and on, including a full three-course breakfast. This is a stay that you will never forget. Engage in our special offers. Call 207-967-3141. 207-967-3141. CaptainLordMansion.com. In Kennebuckport, Maine. Memories and elegance await you.
3: We all suffer from something. ADHD,
2: depression. Motion sickness, Lyme disease, back pain. What is the one thing you're so tired of looking for a remedy for? Are you ready to change that? Are you ready to restore your help and transform your life? It all starts with Dr. Kathy Fry and the power of homeopathy. All the tools you need to mastering everyday self-care without drugs will be right at your fingertips. From remedy kits to books and even a free 20-minute consultation. Your journey to natural healing starts at drkathyfry.com. So what are you waiting for? Start living your best life today. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number 9 of the top 10 Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11:30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723-6733 or visit us at anticofornoboston.com.
0: Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat, no matter what the season. Nominated for Best of the North Shore from North Shore Magazine for Best Alfresco Dining, Best Kid Friendly Restaurant, Best Lobster Dinner, and Best Water View, why would you go anywhere else? Whether you choose their dining room, a frosty pint at their bar, or a sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach, they guarantee you great atmosphere with super food and service. Their menu is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza That everyone will love. Check out their drink menu for fun cocktails. 30 ice cold beers on tap. And their well-rounded wine list. With their state-of-the-art tap wines. They feature full service lottery and kino. Tides is the place to watch any big game. They have over 20 HDTVs. At Tides they specialize in casual dining. With food that's just delicious. Not pretentious. Tides is a fantastic restaurant. Anytime. Summer or winter. Lunch or dinner. Rain or shine.
4: I went down to the crossroads Fell down on my knees All
2: right, we crossroads. are back. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with director Signe Taylor about her documentary, It's Criminal. So welcome back, Signey. Thank you so much. So how do you feel about the current climate of women's issues today and how that affects incarcerated women?
3: I think that we are on the verge of, like, really, really good things. I tend to be very optimistic, so I look at that hashtag MeToo movement and think, like, wow, like, my daughter, who's 17, almost 18, like, she's not going to experience harassment the way that we did back in the 80s and 90s. You know, there's so much more awareness. There's so much more awareness around sexual assault. Just the words rape culture didn't exist, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So I think that we are, um, I think that good things are happening. And I think when good things happen, you know, and I think that that also will help make the lives of incarcerated women better. I think that it's there's also, alongside this increasing awareness around women's issues, I think there's also increasing awareness around addiction and incarceration. And so I'm really, really hoping that those two walk hand in hand mm-hmm. and that incarcerated women who are some of the most disadvantaged people in this country start getting programming, start getting the education that they need to succeed.
2: Okay, so let's get back to your documentary, because I want to talk a little bit more about that. There's, there's a lot more questions. Um, do, what were the easiest and hardest parts of these different groups
3: coming together and connecting? Well, I think that the, in some ways the easy part is that both groups really, really wanted to connect. The incarcerated women and the Dartmouth students, like, they were there, and they wanted to make that connection. And that was very genuine on everybody's part. And so I think that Patty and Ivy, Patty Schweitzer, Patty Hernandez and Ivy Schweitzer, the Dartmouth professors who run this class, do a fantastic job creating a platform where people can connect. So that was the positive part. I think the hard part is that we come with a lot of fears and prejudices, right? Yeah. All of us do. Yeah, yeah a lot of biases and so, yeah yeah a lot of biases and mm-hmm. so all of a sudden those biases as you start moving through the process um those biases come into play and then you have to kind of figure it out and that's what the class is about
2: so what kinds of reservations did each uh, of the incarcerated women students have throughout the film
3: well i think that each group thought the other one would never understand them. Nick, mm. huh. like I, I really think that that's at, at, at some base level, that's what it is. And I think that the Dartmouth students were nervous because they felt like they were walking in there and they, they were really nervous about their own privilege, right?
2: Mm-hmm. They were just nervous
3: yeah. about their own privilege. Yeah. And even even if they came from, you know, economically poor backgrounds, once you, you know, if you're a Dartmouth student, you, you have privilege. You know, no matter where you came from. And so I think that that was, you know, for the Dartmouth students, that was kind of hard to struggle with. And for the women, they were really concerned in the beginning that they would be judged. Oh, and they yeah. just really didn't want to be judged. Well, on both parts. On both, oh, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Nobody wants to be judged. Exactly. You know, we thought of boxed in as a title for the film because ah. I feel like we're all boxed in. Hmm,
2: I like it's criminal.
3: Well, yeah, I actually like its girl better, <laughs> 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 but it was it was one of the contenders, and I think there's some there's a lot of truth in yeah. that.
2: Yeah, I think yeah, it's I like it. Um, so what parts of the process elicited the most emotional responses from the participants?
3: Well, there was one scene in the film, which is you know there in the beginning, Patty Hernandez, who's the Dartmouth professor who runs the Telling My Story program. Patty talks about in the beginning, there's a honeymoon period where everybody basically falls in love and everything's happy, happy. And then in the middle, the rubber hits the road and things start getting hard. Yep. And so that you see that process in the film. And so partway through the film, I think there's a very pivotal scene where the women are asking, are we just an experiment? Are you just guys just coming down to the jail to see what's going on? And they're asking, why is this play only about incarcerated issues like why isn't also about like what you guys are experiencing on the Dartmouth campus and so Patty you know addressed that and said that you know we're doing this is about giving voice to people on the inside and and so that was partially addressed but then one of the students stepped forward I thought very very bravely and started talking about how they weren't sharing their stories because it's really frowned upon to be vulnerable on the Dartmouth campus oh. so really? they, you know she Yeah. So basically, Thander started talking about how it was really hard to be on the Dartmouth campus and everybody's getting A's in a class and you don't even know how to get a B in the class. And, you know, maybe, you know, your parents are experiencing health issues, but you can't ever say that. You can only talk about how everything's going well and how uh, you're, you know, have 10 million extracurricular activities and you're about to go meet with your professor. And so, but then Thander said, but we're going to start sharing And then it was fantastic because Malika, instead of poo-pooing, you know, is it really so bad that you get a B at a college-level class at Dartmouth? Right. You know, so you can see that someone could trivialize that concern. Mm -hmm. But Malika just looked at Sander, and she said, who's to say whose pain is greater? Oh,
2: I remember that, yeah, when I was watching it,
3: yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that was, yeah, it's one of my favorite moments where I felt like Sander said, you know why we're not sharing our stories? Because we don't want to be vulnerable. And then she said, and here's all the different ways I'm vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And Malika basically said, I hear your pain. And, she, and, and pain is pain is pain. And so I thought it was a really nice moment where both groups started to come together. Right. Very defining
2: moment in the film. Right. Right. Yeah. So are you in communication with any of the incarcerated women?
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm in, I'm in communication with most of the women that we worked with. In fact, I'm going to say all of the women i'm just about all the women um yeah they come with me to the screenings they you know we as as much as some of the women have malika is now in georgia so it's harder for her to participate a lot of our screenings are in new england because we're vermont based um so it's harder for her to participate but she did come up for you know we had a we had a bunch of screenings all together and so malika came up and was able to participate in those charlotte comes to just about every screening i've been screening the film around the country for the past year and charlotte left new england for the first time when we premiered in los angeles she got on a plane for the first time for that premiere, and it was fantastic. And, you know, the film has been shown in Texas, in Washington, and Washington State, in Washington, D.C., in Maryland, and New York. Um, and Charlotte's been there for every single one of those shows. And so has Kim, actually, Kim Vasquez.
2: Who do you think got the most out of, out of the film?
3: Of the, you mean like of the characters who got the most out of it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think that, I I don't know. I think that the students and the women all got a ton out of it. Um, I think that certainly for charlotte and kim who who because they live near us still live near us because a lot of the women have moved different places and a lot of the students have obviously moved away um i think they've gotten a ton out of it because charlotte and kim come to the screenings Mm -hmm. and they're able to advocate for more programming in jails they're able to give voice to not only their own stories but they can also speak for you know countless other women Mm -hmm. who are still inside or you know didn't happen to have a camera appear when they were incarcerated um so i would think that you know that the the class continues to impact kim and charlotte on a daily basis what are they like, doing with their? yeah i'm sorry go ahead we did three yeah no worries we did three screenings last week and we did three screenings the week before that so i see kim and Charlotte a oh, lot.
2: Wow. what are they doing with their lives
3: now well um charlotte started as uh the only job she could get was on the, a factory floor, but she is incredibly mechanical, incredibly hardworking, and incredibly smart. And Charlotte is now one of the, the floor supervisors. Very, um, you know, sort of skyrocketed up the ranks. So she's doing great. And Kim mm-hmm. was unable to get a job because... Oftentimes when you get out of jail and have a felony conviction, it's really, really hard to get a job. And so Kim started her own cleaning business. Oh, wow. And so that's what she's been doing. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. So Kim and Charlotte, like they, they, you know, looked around. Charlotte, you know, found a job that, you know, it's pretty unusual for a woman to do and then super unusual that she's now the boss. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. Kim looked around and figured out, like, okay, like, you know, I can't make it over here. I'm going to make it myself. I'm going to make the opportunities for myself.
2: I got a question about mental illness and women mm-hmm. who are incarcerated. Do you think, that, do they come from a family of mental, a lot of them come from families of mental illness?
3: There are, well, I think there's tons of mental illness in society. Oh, um, I do too. So.
2: I do too. Yeah. You
3: know, so certainly all of, you know, so there's plenty of mental illness in my own family. Um... I think there are. I don't know the statistics offhand, but yes, uh, mental illness diagnoses are often associated. You know, there, there, there's, there's, there is, uh, there is an association there with incarceration, but I don't know the numbers.
2: Yeah, so often there's when someone is sick, there's mental illness. You know, and yes. right, yeah,
3: yeah. And uh, you're self-med, and then you're self-medicating. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Uh, yeah. One of my interns said, questions, uh, how was the topic of prejudices, poverty, and marginalized groups approached?
3: Okay. That is a fantastic question. I really wish Patty and Ivy were here, the Dartmouth professors, to, um, to add to what I'm going to say. But I would say that poverty, social abandonment, marginalization, they were addressed in through a bunch of different readings on a theoretical level, those readings were given to both the Dartmouth students and to the women. So the class starts out reading Paulo Freire, who is a um, philosopher who talks a lot about oppression, the oppressors and the oppressed. And says either you belong to the oppressors or you belong to the oppressed and then talks about how to create connection between them. And so it's a very interesting way to start the class because Dartmouth students aren't necessarily thinking of themselves as oppressors and maybe they shouldn't think of themselves as oppressors, but Paulo Freire gets them thinking about privilege in a really interesting way. Um, there also, there's also other books that are on the, it is criminal website. Um, we put the reading list on there and they include Gaber Mate, um, in the realm of hungry ghosts, which talks about addiction and how addiction isn't just to, let's say opiates or, you know, a certain kind of drug that we are a society of addicts and we are all addicted to different things. Like what? Um, consumerism, yeah. our middle-class status, um, so he sort of breaks it down. Um, there's also Nickel to Dimed, which is the story of a woman who tries to make it on minimum wage um, and sort of documents how hard it is to live a life on minimum wage in this country. So it's addressed in the readings and in theoretical discussions in, a lot, uh, you know, on many, in many different ways on many different platforms. And then it's also an underlying question that the women and the students are talking about when they're developing the play and how that happens depends on you know the students and the women mm-hmm. but it happens
2: sydney we're just winding down here with just a couple minutes left is there anything i haven't asked you or anything that you want to share with the audience that that i might have missed
3: You know, thank you so much. We've talked about so much. I guess the one thing I would just say is, like, if this is interesting to you, please visit the website. It is criminal.com. And if you think this would be a good film to screen at your school, at your church, at your synagogue, you know, at your local movie theater, just contact us because, you know, we're on a mission to try and create equal justice, and this film is how we're trying to do it. So we want to get the word out.
2: Is there anything, though, that you would like to share in terms of you know, the conversation that we've had um, that you think that I might have missed or that, y- you know, you'd like to share with our audience? I know we've covered a lot, but I want to make sure we've if there's anything like, you lot. know, was there a time during this interview that you thought, oh, I, you know, I'd love to talk about this or that or, you know, whatever it might be that, that you'd like to share?
3: No, I think just that... Um I guess one thing that I would say is I used to think of before making this film, I used to think that equal justice was another thing that was wrong, right? Just another problem that we have to, that we can't deal with and it's too big and we can't change it. Mm -hmm. But after working on this film, I feel like equal justice is something that we need to address in the same way that this country has done an amazing job addressing slavery, addressing Jim Crow laws. Like we make addressing like LG, you know, L- LGBTQ rights, I always get, I'm a little bit dyslexic, so <laughs> <It's okay>. <laughs> the acronyms <laughs> don't come quickly for me. Okay. Um, um, so I guess I would say that equal justice, I don't think it's just another issue now. I think it's like a primary thing that's wrong in our society, and if you think that we don't have equal justice, that would be great to kind of brainstorm how we can have equal justice because... That's kind of the basis of a democracy.
2: Yes, Signe Taylor. Thank you so much for being on Talk with Francesca today. What is your um, website address again so that our listeners can link on to it?
3: Absolutely. The website is
2: itiscriminal.com. And I've been saying it's criminal all along, right? Well, the title is actually it's criminal, oh, it but is? we okay. couldn't get that website out. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking, did I mess that up that whole time? No, 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 no. Okay, <laughs> Just great. Consistency there. Great. Well, thanks again for being with us today on Talk with Francesca. It's really been a pleasure. It's it's great information. I'm I'm so excited to be able to share it with our listeners.
3: Thank you so much. This has been an amazing talk. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye
2: bye. All right. It's time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. Hope that you enjoyed the show as much as I did. I found it so interesting. If you missed part of the show, you can go to recent shows on my website. You can also listen on iTunes. See you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week.